Is a? Give me a water. Good morning. We doing all right today? Can you hear me okay? Okay. Anybody need a Bible? If, we, if you need a Bible, we want to get one put in your hands here directly so that you can follow along. And, uh, you know, as we like to say, not only get into God's Word, but get God's Word into us. Amen. All right. I don't think I have anything to add or share with regard to anything that's been brought up so far, so we'll just jump right in today. Let's take our Bibles, let's turn in them uh, to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at chapters 21 and 22 today in a message that I've entitled, Clothed, Strengthened, and Called. And we're glad you're with us, we're glad you're with us. Let's uh, take our hearts to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father God, once again, we just say thank you for uh, meeting with us, ministering to us already. And Lord, we just look forward to uh, the, the word that you have for us today. And so we're praying, God, you give us ears to hear you. And Lord, as always, we pray, would you help us to have uh, that heart that's not only open to you, but that desires to render obedience to you, Lord, and that we be doers of your word, not hearers only, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Guys, we're in this section of scripture that's dealing uh, with the judgment of the nations, okay? But by way of reminder, Isaiah is not a book that is kept in any real consistent kind of chronological order. We should not think chronologically with these writings. Probably more accurate to think thematically. Let's not forget that Isaiah's ministry spanned over the reign of four different kings. And so we're in this section and we're reading of judgment here and judgment there and you know this is coming and that's going to happen and if we're not careful we can kind of allow it to take on the flow of nonstop mayhem and madness uh, all over the ancient world in one giant whirlwind of judgment. But that's not what's happening. Uh, these writings were taking place over the course of some significant stretches of time. Okay, uh, we, you know, we just happen to read them in this free fall of information, so it reads like global annihilation. Uh, but in some cases, what Isaiah would write would take place hundreds of years after he wrote them. Uh, and so uh, that would be the case here beginning in uh, chapter 21. So let's look at it together. Beginning in verse 1, the burden against the wilderness of the sea. As whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. A distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunderer plunders. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media, all its sighing I have made to cease. Now this phrase in verse 1, the wilderness of the sea, or, or maybe your Bible reads the desert of the sea. It's a pretty interesting phrase, isn't it? It's like saying the dryness of the water, uh, the desert of the sea. Now, I would remind you that the common rendering in Hebrew for any large body of water is the word sea. Uh, so, you know, where we might use the word lake. And so we have the Dead Sea, we have the Sea of Galilee. They're just large bodies of water. They're not oceans by any stretch. And the reference here in the first verse is to the kingdom again of Babylon. Now, we know that for two reasons. Number one, it is a desert region that is divided by swampy marshes between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. But then maybe even more with more certainty, Isaiah tells us plainly in verse 9, he's speaking about Babylon. 
So we don't have to deduct a whole lot. We just read through it and we realize who he's speaking to. But what makes this prophecy so incredible is that Isaiah tells us that Babylon will be taken down by the Persians, go up Elam, and the Medes, besiege Omedia. Now at this point in history, Babylon you know, even Babylon is not threatening to be any kind of world-conquering global empire, much less the Medes and the Persians. Uh, the Medes and the Persians were still these kind of nomadic kind of clans migrating around the desert. But God says Babylon will one day be destroyed, and it won't be taken down by the Assyrians. It will not be overcome by the Egyptians. It's not going to be conquered by the Ethiopians. It will be a Medo-Persian empire that will bring Babylon down. Now, this prophetic word uh, God gave hundreds of years, about 200 years before it would take place, and yet it would take place down to the detail. Now, if you were with me last week, I was talking to you just briefly about a fellow that I was sharing with at our local Dunaway Day you know, Festival, and as is common, one of the struggles, one of the issues he had was believing that the Bible could be completely trustworthy. You know, written by man and all of that. You've all heard that before. But you need to know that the Bible deals with that kind of skepticism. And God goes out of his way to verify and to ratify his word by detailing for us things that will take place, guys, in some cases, minutes, uh, in some cases, months, years, millenniums in advance, every kind of uh, time period in between, and he never misses. And the point that he's communicating is you can trust my word. God is the one who knows the end from the beginning. He can speak of things to come as though they've happened in the past because there's that much certainty in them. Uh, we read in Isaiah 46, I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. And you know, there's something about the written word that kind of drives a stake into the ground, isn't there? I mean, if someone just says something, well, you know, perhaps it could be walked back, it could be uh, restated or said in a different way to make it fit or even perhaps create plausible deniability. No, you didn't hear me right. That wasn't what I said exactly, you see, in the days before recording audio was possible. But once you write something down, you're stuck with it, and that's the end of it. And there are in the upwards some 2,000 prophecies recorded in Scripture. And guess how many of them have missed so far? Any guesses? <laughs> yeah, absolutely none have missed. Now, if in the, let's say, 6,000 years, give or take a few here or there, of human history, if not one prophecy written in Scripture has failed or fallen to the ground or missed in the past, what are the odds of one missing in the future? The idea is what will it take for people to trust the certainty of the Word of God? I mean, what more do you want? And let me say this. I've discovered, by the way, without exception, that when a person is ready to turn from their sin, when they're ready to cry out to Jesus Christ, they have no problem believing the Bible. But when they need justification for sin in their life, they have this struggle really believing it, you see. Now, one more quick application for you. I want you to notice the vision that's declared to Isaiah is, well, the word he uses 
is distressing. Why? Well, he tells us, because the treacherous dealer deals treacherously, because the plunderer plunders. You could say the punisher punishes. Uh, People do what they do. It's the fact that these nations will do what they've come to do. And guys, I just want you to know that your enemy will do what he came to do as well. And Jesus said, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And listen to me when I tell you, he's coming for your family. He's coming for your loved ones. He's coming for your friends. He doesn't care who it is. Uh, He wants to deceive. He wants to divide. He wants to destroy. He wants to tear your family apart. He wants to deceive your loved ones. He wants to destroy people's lives. And if he can convince people to leave this planet apart from Jesus Christ, then as we read here, the treacherous deals treacherously, the plunderer plunders, and that should, family, distress you and me. That should burden us, you see. We want to see souls coming to the saving grace of God and not leaving this world without Jesus, you see. And so we read in verse... Three, therefore my loins are filled with pain, and pangs have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. Prepare the table, set a watchman in the tower, eat and drink, arise you princes, anoint the shield. Now, we've spoken of this before. God's judgment did not bring any joy to Isaiah's heart. His heart was hurting. He says, my loins are filled with pain. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. And guys, at the risk of redundancy, can I just say, judgment doesn't joy God's heart either. Uh, His righteousness, his justice demands judgment, but his desire is that people would turn from their wicked ways and live. God is not willing, not wanting, the Bible says, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the choice is ours, isn't it? Uh, Salvation or condemnation, God leaves the choice up to you, up to me, you see. Now, verse 5 reads in detail of the way that Babylon would fall. And you can read of it in the book of Daniel, but Belshazzar was partying, man. He was throwing a feast, the Bible says, for a thousand of his lords, uh, his leaders, his kind of uh, top-tier folks, you see. Uh, They were eating and they were drinking and without a care in the world. Now, they knew that the Medo-Persian army was outside the walls. They just didn't care. Because they were so confident in their ability to withstand a siege, they didn't give it a second thought. They thought that they would mock them, for lack of a better term, by throwing a party while they were out there kind of doing their thing. Because no one could penetrate their ability or their their walls that that surrounded their city. No one could go over their walls. They were too high. They were too thick. They would have chariot races on top of their walls for crying out loud. They just weren't worried about it. And so what did the army do? 
They stopped the flow of the river, the Euphrates, that went into Babylon, and they went under the walls on the riverbed, and they took the city by stealth in a single night. And again, Isaiah is writing this, guys, some 200 years before it would happen. The Babylonians were partying, but their enemies were plotting. Do you understand what I'm saying? Listen, don't be ignorant of your enemy's devices. While we sleep, he strategizes. He never takes time off. Watch and pray, yes, lest you enter in to temptation. Now, in verse 6, For thus has the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman. Let him declare what he sees. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys, a chariot of camels. And he listened earnestly with great care. And then he cried, A lion, my Lord. I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have sat my post every night. And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. And then he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. Oh, my threshing and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. So the vantage point here, ladies and gentlemen, is from the watchman on the wall. That's kind of the vantage point that we're given here. And there are lots of nuances in this little section of Scripture, uh, some of which, honestly, I'm not altogether certain of. But the general gist is that the watchman is doing his part. He's paying close attention. He's listening earnestly. He's watching continuously, day and night. And he's reporting what he sees. And when you boil it down, what he sees is the fall of Babylon. This great world empire would crumble. Now, if verse 9 sounds familiar, it's because it's picked up and used again in the book of Revelation, chapters 14 and chapter 18. Uh, Back in Isaiah chapter 13, if you remember right, I took the time to detail for you the fact that Babylon is mentioned uh, more than any other city in Scripture outside of Jerusalem. And it speaks not only to the empire historically, but to the world system, you see, apart from God presently, and the religious system of the world apart from Jesus Christ. Now, I want to talk about something for a second, and that is this. Many people believe that Christianity is a religion. It is not. God hates religion. Uh, Religion is all about what man needs to do or not to do that we might somehow ascend to this place whereby we make ourselves right in the sight of God. Now, of course, the problem with that is that there is nothing we can do or else Jesus wouldn't have come because there are none that are righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we can't do a perfect work or offer a perfect atonement for our sin because we come, as I like to say, flawed from the factory. Uh, That is, we are born in sin, which of course presents a problem, doesn't it? Because how do you bridge a gap between a perfect God and imperfect man if all man can present is an imperfect or imperfection at its best, but God demands perfect righteousness? So 
What happens? God solves the sin dilemma in becoming a man in the person of Jesus Christ and being born of Mary. He's 100% human, which means he's qualified to stand in the gap on behalf of man, being the only begotten of the Father. He is 100% God, which means he is without sin. He is completely righteous. He is perfect in all of his ways. And what does he do? Well, the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death and that it's the blood, Leviticus 17, 11, that makes atonement for the soul. And so Jesus willingly lays down his life upon the altar of the cross and he shed his blood for the remission of our sin. He was made sin for us, the Bible declares. Now, he, was never, he never became a sinner. That's an important distinction. But he was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And it's by grace that we're saved, you see through faith, and that not of ourselves, right? It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Religion boasts and brags in the accomplishments of man. Christianity boasts in the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of man. I will not boast, Paul said, save in the cro- except for in the cross of Jesus Christ. Religion says do, Christianity says done, the work of salvation is complete in Christ. And so God hates religion, but he longs for a relationship with you through his son, Jesus Christ. But we see these same words echoed in the book of Revelation, as I said, chapters 14 and 18. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The angel declaring the downfall of commercial and religious Babylon in the midst of the great tribulation. Again, I echo God hates religious systems. He doesn't want you to be religious. He wants you to have a real, genuine, vibrant relationship with him by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Okay. Now, look at verse 11. The burden against Duma, or however you say. He calls out to me, or he calls to me out of seer. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? And the watchman said, the morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. Now, Duma was uh, another name for the ancient kingdom of Edom. The Edomites descended from Esau. And of course, Esau was Jacob's brother, and Jacob would become Israel, so these guys were related. Now again, there's a few things that could be said about this passage, but the main thing that I want you to see, family, don't miss it, is the role and the responsibility of the watchman. The watchman's responsibility is to be vigilant, uh, to be observant, to be attentive to what's going on around him. And he's to keep people informed. He's to warn the people of what's to come so that they can be adequately prepared for anything that's coming their way. Now today, many Christians, including pastors, okay, would rather bury their head in the sand and pretend everything's okay rather than sound the alarm 
and be honest with people that they might have the opportunity to be prepared for what's coming in reality. Why? Well, because if you sound the alarm, uh, people might be offended, or people might leave your church, or it might create a divide. Listen, guys, it's never my heart to create a divide. It's my heart to speak the truth in love. But I am sober to the fact that Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Guys, in other words, the truth of the word of God will draw a line in the sand. And people have to decide on which side of that line that they are going to stand. And the sad fact is that not everyone will decide to stand with Christ, which creates division. Now, that's not God's desire, uh, but it's the result of people choosing to reject Jesus Christ and the truth of God's word. But you and me, we have the responsibility to sound the alarm. The morning comes, but also the night. What does that mean? It means grace is available. Morning comes, but judgment is on the way, and also the night. And that's why the urgency of the call goes out. If you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. You see, the New Testament vernacular reads like this. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In the book of Hebrews, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, there's hope currently. Grace is available presently, but judgment is coming inescapably time is short seek the Lord while you still can now in verse 13 the burden against Arabia in the forest in Arabia you will lodge O you traveling companies of the Dedanites or Dedanites however you want to say O inhabitants of the land of Tema, bring water to him who is thirsty. With their bread they met him who fled, for they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the distress of war. For thus the Lord has said to me within a year, according to the year of a hired man. What does that mean, according to the year of a hired man? All that means is with incredible accuracy exactly all right so in other words if you contracted with someone if you went to work for someone in a year and you got paid you know after your year was done do you think you'd just be like i don't know i think i've worked a year for him no you'd be like it's today right so there's an exactness there's a precision there and that's what he's saying so within the year within the time of a hired man or uh, all the glory of kadar will fall and the remainder of the number of the archers the mighty men of the people of kadar will be diminished for the lord god of israel has spoken it so again the the prophecy with specificity within a year now i'm just going to draw out a quick application here look where it says bring water to him who is thirsty With their bread, they met him who fled. Guys, you realize this, right? Jesus is the bread of life. Uh, He said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Jesus alone can satisfy the deepest thirst and the deepest hunger that resides in the heart of every man. People are thirsting. Family, you've got to know this. People are thirsting for more than what this world has to offer. So I am trying to embolden you. I'm trying to encourage you. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed to share the Lord with people that he's placed within the parameters of your life. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Let God use your life to quench the thirst, to satisfy the hunger of those looking for refuge which they cannot find in this world. Okay, you guys still with me? All right, chapter 22. The burden against the valley of vision. What ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? You who are uh, full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Uh, your, your slain men aren't slain with the sword nor dead in battle. All your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. Therefore, I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. So this is, again, how we deduce the valley of vision is a reference to Jerusalem. Now, I'm not really sure if it's a reference to Jerusalem proper because it's kind of a city on a hill, but it's surrounded by higher hills, so it could be considered a valley. Uh, yet uh, also there are valleys that surround the city of Jerusalem, so maybe the valley, you know, the Kidron Valley, I don't know. But since Judah is behaving in the same manner as her pagan neighbors, then judgment finds them as well. But he envisions people coming out on their housetops. Now, don't think like... Uh, you know, as we are today, culturally in America, like you're going to get a ladder and you're going to climb up on your roof and try and look around at what's going on or whatever the case may be. Think of a flat, like a deck or a porch, like they have upper rooms that go out and then those rooms would literally go out on a flat housetop and that's where they would uh, spend a lot of time relax. Remember when uh, in the book of Acts, when Peter was out on the rooftop, he was waiting for dinner and then the vision came and the sheet came and all that, he was out on the roof. This is just, and still to this day, you go to Israel and people hang out on the flats of, of their roof. Uh, um, excuse me. But he envisions the people coming out on their housetops to make sense of the noise that they're hearing. Is it tumultuous? Is it joyous? What they see coming is calamity. Now, not people dying from battle. They weren't slain with the sword. It would be famine and disease that would find them as Babylon would surround the city and starve them out. And this was a very common uh, kind of uh, approach, strategic approach to taking uh, capital cities and different places in the ancient world army would simply surround the walls because you know there were walls around the city they would just surround the walls nothing comes in nothing goes out and so eventually they use up all their supplies they starve themselves to death or they come out and get captured maybe they try to flee and you, you know and the battle ensues whatever the case may be but they would surround the city there would be a siege and they would starve them out and those who would seek to flee would be captured by Babylon and in verse 4 again we see how this devastates Isaiah now, we recognize Jeremiah as the weeping prophet, right? But I'm telling you, 
Isaiah did his fair share of lamenting and crying over the coming judgment. Again, would to God that we shared the heart of God, the burden of God uh, for the lost. Now, uh, in, in verse 5, for it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down walls and of crying to the mountain, Elam bore the quiver with chariots and men and horsemen, and Kerr uncovered the shield. Uh, it shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots, and the horsemen shall set themselves in, in array at the gate. Now, the, the Elamites were neighbors to the Babylonians. Uh, probably seen here as allies in the attack, but hordes of chariots, hordes of horsemen surrounding the city, and the Lord would not deliver them. In fact, he would remove his protection from them. Notice in verse 8, he removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. You also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And you gathered together uh, the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. In other words, they see the army coming. They're even taking the materials away from the houses. They're fixing the walls. And you also made a reservoir between the two walls for water, uh, for the water of the old pool. Stop right there. Do you guys see the problem here? Listen, you can employ all the strategy. Uh, you can strengthen and fortify every area practically. But when the Lord removes his protection, those things are not going to help you even marginally. Right? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. You've heard this. Uh, and truthfully, guys, the problem isn't that they took practical measures to ensure their safety. The problem is that they didn't make seeking the Lord, his heart, his plans, a priority. Okay, look with me, continuing on in verse 11. But you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. And in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth, but instead, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep and eating meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity, underline it, there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. Well, you get the idea, don't you? They did everything they could do practically. They beefed up their security. They tried to shore up their economy. They sought to be prepared militarily. And then they adopted this fatalistic mentality. Look, we've done all we can do. Let's just live it up, man. I mean, que sera, sera. We eat, we drink for tomorrow, we die. But they hadn't done all they could do. They didn't inquire of the Lord. They didn't say, God, are you, you trying to get our attention here? God, what would you have us to do? God, we humble ourselves. We repent of our sin. Lead us, oh God, in the way that we should go. They didn't do that. And God says, instead of feasting, I'd have called for fasting. 
Instead of slaying the sheep, I'd have called to gird up the sackcloth. I'd have called for repentance and lamentation. You opted for rejoicing and celebration. And surely for this iniquity, he says, there will be no atonement for you even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. We go, wow. Wait, what? What is this sin that cannot be forgiven, that cannot be atoned for? Well, it is the sin, the choice to live in sin rather than humble yourself before the Lord, turn from your sin and seek after him. You see, if you reject the Lord, you reject his word, you reject his ways, there is no atonement. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And so if you won't come through him, guess what? You won't come to the Father. There is no access, there is no forgiveness except through Jesus Christ. Now guys, I'm sure that you have noted as of, you have noted as of late uh, that I've been a little more intentional about speaking into where we're at currently you know, as a society, and that's important, right? Because God could have put you in any time, in any place, in any culture, but he chose to place you in this time, at this place, and in this culture. And he's called you to a time such as this. And so I want to do my very best to equip you, to fortify in you a biblical worldview, and to encourage you to stand boldly for the truth. Not rudely, there's a difference, but boldly, so that you might be a light in this dark world and speak the truth in love. People... Listen, people deserve the truth that they might have the opportunity to prepare accordingly. It's also accurate to say that as a society in our nation currently that this is where we're at. You know, we can do all, we do all that we can do uh, militarily, technologically, economically to secure ourselves against whatever would-be enemy. We live it up culturally, eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. We focus on celebration when we should be humbling ourselves in lamentation and returning to the Lord. All of that's true. But in this moment, I want to change the focus from where we're at nationally, and I want to ask you, where are you at personally? What do you look to to make yourself secure? To fortify yourself against opposition? Well, pastor, I'm learning to garden for the coming economic apocalypse. You know, I'm learning to hunt and to fish, to live off the land so that when everything goes south, you know, I'm kind of a low-key prepper, <laughs> Now, are those things wrong? Not in and of themselves, not at all. I mean, it's good to, as my buddy Victor Marx would say, uh, be prepared but not paranoid. But the question that confronts us isn't so much what we're doing as it is why we're doing it. 
Why are we, is the Lord leading us in wisdom or are we acting out of fear, out of uncertainty, uh, doubting God's ability to defend and take care of us? Have you looked to your maker? Have you sought him for direction and if necessary, correction in your life? Guys, let's be careful that we don't neglect to seek the Lord and that we might maintain a humble attitude of repentance before the Lord. Okay. That's way, way on down. You can take that scripture off. (laughs) Uh, But in verse uh, 15, that's coming. That's a coming preview. I don't know what happened there. In verse 15, we read, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go, proceed to this uh, steward. Now we get personal here, right? To Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here, and whom have you? Uh, you here, that you have hewn a sepulcher here, and uh, he who hews himself a, a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. Uh, He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country, and there you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. Okay, this is where we get a little bit of a timeline. Shebna was a servant or a steward in the house of King Hezekiah. And the short of it is that he thought way more highly of himself than he ought to have. And so God confronts him in his pride. He's, when he says, what have we here? Who have we here? It's kind of like, well, you know, well, well, you know, that kind of a thing. Who have we got here? What have we got here? And he was making himself, Shebna was making himself a high and lofty and prestigious tomb. And this was something that the wealthy and the powerful would do. They would show you know, their worth long after they were gone. But essentially God says, listen, you are nothing and you have nothing. And I'm going to take you and toss you. I'm going to seize you. I'm going to throw you away violently into another country and there you will die in obscurity. Think about that. He was the kind of man that the Lord spoke of in Luke chapter 12 verses 16 through 21. You can write that down and look that up later. But we see it, we say it over and over again, guys. God hates pride. Look at verse 19. He says, so I will drive you out of your office and from your position he will pull you down. Uh, We read in Psalm 75 that promotion does not come from the east or from the west or from the south, but God is the judge. He puts one down, he exalts another. And God would remove this man who was full of himself And he would establish a man who would be faithful to serve him. Now in verse 20, we read, Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe. I will strengthen him with your belt. And I will commit your responsibility into his hand. 
And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. And so he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. And I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place. And he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. And they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all the vessels of small quantity, from the cups to all the pitchers. Okay, spoiler alert, which maybe the alert's already been spoiled. Eliakim becomes for us a type of Christ. Jesus identifies with him. Now's the time, ready, go. In this scripture right here. Revelation 3, 7. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. What does that mean? That means all authority, all power belongs to Jesus Christ. There are none who can oppose him. And he can choose to open a door for you. And if he opens that door for you, there isn't nothing anyone can do. No one can shut it but he can also close a door before you. And there's nothing you can do to crack it open once he does. The authority to do these things is his alone. And he is, Jesus becomes the peg uh, in the secure place. Now, uh, in the ancient world, they didn't really have closets, okay, for storage. They would place a peg, right, or a dowel, we might say, like a dowel rod or something, in a wall, and they would hang their cups on it, like the, the, the handle of the cup wasn't really uh, initially fashioned for our own convenience to hook our finger through. It was really created so they could hang it in the secure place. Uh, they could store it appropriately. And so, uh, you know, whether it was coats or clothing or cups or whatever it is, they would hang their, their items on the peg. If something's on its peg, it's safe, it's secure, it's stored properly, it's ready to be used instantly at a moment's notice, at any time. Now, you and me, we are the vessels. You understand where this is going, right? We are the vessels of the Lord. He is the peg in the secure place, meaning that so long as we're hanging on him, so long as we're, the New Testament vernacular, abiding in him, okay, we're safe, we're secure, we're ready for his use. It's not about the size or the quality of the vessel, but it's attachment to the peg, to be hung on the peg that's fastened in the secure place. In other words, it's safe, it's secure, it's not coming down, nothing is going to disrupt it, all right? Now look at verse 25, and this is where uh, we're gonna close, Karen. So verse 25, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed. In other words, the current peg that's there, right? Sheba, or Shebna, pardon me. Uh, and cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. So, in other words, what he's saying here is Shebna had to go so that Eliakim could be established. What's the take home here for you and for me? I think there's two things. Number one, whatever you're attached to, whatever you're depending on, if it's not the Lord, it has to be removed. It has to be cut down. It has to be taken away so that Jesus might have that place in your life. 
make sure that you are resting on the right peg. You're trusting in, you're leaning on, you're, you're secure in the right thing, right? And that Jesus is anchored in your heart as that peg in the secure place. Number two, uh, I just want you to see here in verses 20 and 21, I like to draw attention to it because we love the title, My Servant Eliakim. This is the Lord speaking, you know, because that's what we all long for God to see us as. My servant, put your name in the blank, right? That's what we all long to be, just the servant of God. And I want you to notice what he does here. He clothes you, number one. That is, He robes you in the righteousness of Christ. He strengthens you, number two. Then He commits responsibility to you. That is, He calls you. Right? So He clothes you, He strengthens you, and He calls you. And so humble yourself before the Lord. Live your life set apart as unto the Lord. And God will be glorified in your life. Amen? Okay. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize, uh, we want to confess our complete dependence upon you. And I pray, God, that you forgive us when we get out in front of you, when we fail to seek after you. We don't want to be a people who Maybe look to you eventually when we've exhausted every other option or whatever the case may be, but Lord, that you would be our utmost priority, that we might be your servants, clothed, strengthened, called by you, our lives bringing glory to you. I pray, God, that you have your way in this place and in our lives. And God, be there anyone here who just, maybe uh, you're tugging on the, on the strings in their heart today. Lord, that they just respond to you, give their life to you, God. And guys, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I, I just, by way of reminder, God hates religion. We're not, what's happening here is not, we're not going to give you an opportunity to become religious to find religion. God wants a relationship with you. He wants to clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. He wants to strengthen you. He wants to call you to himself. Today is the day of salvation. If you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. The morning comes. Grace is available presently, but also the night. Judgment's coming. Seek the Lord while you can. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Turn from your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. And so if God is knocking on the door of your heart, and today you're prepared to open it, you'll hear his voice, you won't harden your heart, you'll open your heart, and you'll say, Lord Jesus, here I am, take me. I surrender fully. I mean, I'm raising the white flag. I'm talking unconditionally, God, just take my life. Well, 
then listen, I don't care how old or how young you are, where you've been, what you've done, who you've come here with, be it by just on your own initiatives, maybe someone invited you, I, I don't know. But ultimately, it's because God has ordained that you would be here on this day, in this moment, to have this opportunity to say yes to Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. And so if today is a day for you, can I pray for you? It's going to take a measure of humility from you. You're going to have to humble yourself and say, Lord, here I am. And so if this moment's for you, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. If I see your hand, I'll say so, and you can put it back down. But I just want to give you a second to say, you know what? I'm not going to let this day, this moment, this time pass me by. I'm going to respond to the initiative of the Lord. God is the one who takes the initiative to reach out to us. But man, we've got to grab hold. We've got to lay hold of that for which he's laying hold of us. Anyone at all? It's your chance. Don't, God bless you, man. I see you. You can put your hand down if you want. Anyone else? God bless you too. God bless you too. Anybody else? God bless you. God bless you, man. It's awesome. Guys, again, I'm not asking you to join this church. I'm not asking you to find religion. I'm saying, do you need Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin, to come into your life, and to make you whole? Anyone else I could pray for? Okay. Well, listen, I, I want you to know that it's not a prayer that saves you. You're not jumping through a hoop. You're not cutting red tape. You're not, this isn't the religious work, right? Bible's very clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's by grace that you're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. But I just want to lead you in this prayer. And you can just cry out from your heart. Believe me when I tell you that God hears the cry of your heart. But you got to be honest with him. The Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And again, at the risk of redundancy, it's by grace that we're saved through faith. Faith becomes that conduit through which the saving grace of God floods into our lives. And so would you just come to the Lord before him and just say, Lord Jesus, here I am. And God, I am a sinner. I have sinned. And I fall so short of your glory your perfection you see and God I'm not making excuses for my sin I'm not trying to justify my sin I'm confessing my sin and I ask you to forgive me right here right now not because of anything that I've done but on the basis Jesus of what you have done for me I'm asking you, Lord, to come into my heart, to come into my life, to make me new. God, would you fill me with the person and the power of your Holy Spirit? And help me to lead my life all the days of my life from this day forward for you. 
And thank you for putting my name in your book of life. Guys, I want to encourage you that if you prayed a prayer like that, it didn't have to be exact, but God's hearing the cry of your heart. And Jesus has come into your heart and into your life, and he's made you new. The Bible says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And you're leaving here brand new, different than the way you walked in. I just want you to rejoice in that, to receive that, to be blessed by that. Your sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west. God remembers it no more. Again, not because of anything we do, but on the basis of what Jesus has done. Be blessed by that. Lord, we thank you for your word. And again, that we would be doers of your word for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. And what do we say? Amen. 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 Why don't we rise to our feet? Guys, uh, I want to encourage you um, Billy talked for just a second about this uh, October 22nd date that's coming up and I just look I just want to encourage you to come out and uh, kind of catch the vision for the direction that we're headed as a ministry to be aware of what's happening in our nation and our biblical responsibility Guys, God has called us to be watchmen. I shared this with the servants a little bit earlier. It's found in the book of Ezekiel chapter 3. and Beginning in verse 17, God says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman. Now for them, he made him a watchman for the nation of Israel. That's where he was called. He had been called to a time such as that. You've been called to a time such as this. So he says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, and this is where people sometimes I think misunderstand me, you know, when I'm trying to speak directly and clearly, I'm not trying to be rude, I'm not trying to be harsh, but I want to speak openly and honestly and clearly and truthfully. And if it's a warning, it needs to be administered in that same authority with which God has administered it. The certainty of the coming, you know, so that people know clearly this is what's going to happen. Now I can make my decision, right? Now, he says, when I say to the wicked, you shall die, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his sin. Listen to this. But his blood I will require at your hand. Think about that. God says, listen, believer, I'm setting you as a watchman on the wall in your society, in your community, where you work or where you live personally. And when I give a warning from my word and I say, you need to share this with someone and you go, I don't know, I might offend them. I might, you know, I might hurt someone's feelings. They might not like me. You know, what's going to happen, you know? And so you opt not to. And, and so they don't know. They, don't, they, they never get that opportunity or whatever the case may be. He says, yeah, they're still going to die in their sin, but their blood I'm holding on your hands. Think about that. 
And that's important. So anyway, so that's why kind of this uptick lately, right, in, in boldness and clarity and, and wanting to speak the truth in love so that the warning goes out clearly. And then our hands are clean. But it's not just me. You might say that there's a little more responsibility, obviously, scripturally, on pastors and, and elders and leaders and those who would be over the flock and sharing the truth of the word of God into the culture and the community to which they're called. But listen, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, right? And so I'm just saying, let's learn to speak the truth in love. Let's ask that the Lord would fill us with his Holy Spirit, uh, that uh, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, and that we would speak the truth in love that people might have the opportunity to accept Jesus Christ, reject Jesus Christ. God didn't call us uh, to be successful. He called us to be faithful. He didn't call us to be famous. He called us to be faithful. He says, man, you, you leave the results to, in the hands of the Lord. All you can do is what he's called you to do, and I'm just trying to encourage you, embolden you, empower you, to say, do for what God has called you to do. Lay hold of that for which he has laid hold of you, man. Be light, be salt. So may the Lord bless you. And that's the kind of thing that we're going to be talking about on that day. And that's why I say, the, the money part, $10 covers the meal, and the 25 if your family covers the meal, helps cover the cost for child care and all of that. But ultimately, I don't care about any of that, okay? I'm just saying, come. If you can't, it's just an honor system. If you can pay for it, pay for it. If you go, man, I, I could, I, I, I really can't, well, then just come. But we just need to know that you're going to be here so we can provide for you, okay? So may the Lord bless you and be with you. May he watch out over you. And may he pour his spirit out upon you. May there be a boldness that resonates in you and overflows from you. May the love of God, may torrents of living waters just flow from you. And may God use you to just quench the deepest thirst and satisfy the deepest hunger in the heart of all those that he would place in your path, that he would lay on your heart to share his goodness and his grace and his mercy. For it is the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. If you were praying with me and, and saying yes to Jesus, we encourage you to come down. We'd love, I think Pastor Russ over there has some materials. There's his wife, Kim. She's got them. Uh, we'd love just to give you some little bit of material to help you kind of get, uh, how we say, calibrated and just kind of uh, assimilated. <laughs> you know, that's probably the wrong word, but you understand what I'm trying to say so that you kind of get a grip on, man, what just happened, man? And this will just help you. It's not absolutely essential, but the principles in it are. Um, but but any, any need you have for prayer, that's why we're here, okay, guys? We just want to love on you, be available to you, whatever your need may be. So, Father, I pray, God, once again, just pour your spirit out, blessing upon blessings upon your body here, Father, that you would, uh, Lord, we thank you for edifying us. It's our desire to glorify you. And I pray, God, that we would leave here, Lord, with a newfound boldness. Lord, we thank you that uh, perfect love casts out fear, that you haven't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so, Lord, just give us the word in season, out of season, that we be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. God, strengthen your church. Lord, clothe us once again in white. Forgive us our sin. Go before us, God. Have your way in us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday. Uh, don't forget the opportunities, guys. Monday nights for the men, uh, Thursday nights for the Bible study, women's studies on the way, guys. Lots of stuff coming up, so blessings to you.